All right, everybody, it's Jean Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations with just a couple more days left until the second half of Jazz Fest, and aren't we excited about it, and all kinds of interesting things going on. Beyonce is on the top of the list right now. Not that I really understand the whole thing, but I love that she did her video in New Orleans again, so nothing wrong with that. And, um, yeah, if you have anything to comment on that, I'll, I'll take your comments, 260-9265. But we have some really interesting people lined up in the show for you who are really knowledgeable, of first of all, about how to launch a career um, in rap and other music forms. And then we have, and that is a guy named Chris Kajolius. I hope I have that right, founder of Swimming Management. Then John Swenson, who is a major writer, who's been writing about music for um, yeah, almost as long as I've been <laughs> at it. <laughs> and then um, uh, Jean Montez is an artistic director for the Greater New Orleans Youth Orchestra, and he's going to talk about you know, how he works with youth and how he kind of helps them come along and understand better um, how they can uh, realize their talents. So I'm going to um, poke my button here and hope I got the right button for the right guy. God, has it gotten blackout. Um, so I'm going to take just a minute and hold on because we've got to get him back, I think. But um, I'll tell you a little. I'll introduce him a little bit for you for just a second. So Chris... Um, has been handling Pell. Now, uh, not everybody out there probably knows um, of him, but he is one of the big up-and-coming acts um, in town. And um, he, he's uh, one of these artists who takes ownership of his career. And that is, as we we know, is critical in, in being able to advance what you're doing. You can't just... Um, go out there, play music, record it. You've, you've got to really take care of the business side. And um, this is a guy who figured that out. He is a young, a young dude, but he already understands the importance of owning his music. And when I saw that in the write-up on the SyncUp conference that he's going to be a part of um, this weekend, that's why I wanted to have him on the show for you, because I want you to hear what he has to say. So let's talk for just one second about the SyncUp conference. And that is in New Orleans this weekend. Um, you know, they used to be out there at the New Orleans Museum of Art, but they've moved now that they have their own headquarters right next to the um, Jazz Fest offices on Rampart Street. So it's now in what they call the George and Joyce Ween Jazz and Heritage Center at 1225 North Rampart Street, which is just two blocks downriver from Esplanade. So um, this is something you're going to want to do. Um, lots of folks come to it. And you know what? The Jazz Fest does a beautiful job of really pulling in people on it. So should I be pressing number one? No, don't press anything. You're on the air. Chris? All right. Yeah, I'm here. All right. I'm sorry. Uh, just a, a, a flash moment there of trying to figure out where in the ether you are. Um, so, Chris, <laughs> is that the right pronunciation of your name, first of all, Kajolius? Uh, yeah, Kajolius. Kajolius. Very close. All right. And yeah. um, you're a founder of Swimming Management, and um, you you got your, you know, as as is typically true of people in the music business, you got an early start. You you dipped your toes in when you were still a student at Mississippi State University. You started your first venture, Lost Legend Entertainment. 
a booking yes, and promotions company following a music internship in London. Now, that's an interesting move for you to have made. Why did you go off to London? I just kind of want to get a little better background here before we dive into the story on Pell. Um, yeah, well, you know, I've been doing the live performance uh, booking and promotion, and i gotten to work with a lot of managers, um, kind of hands-on with building tour outings and building different marketing initiatives for shows. And one of those managers had come up under another manager named Mike Dixon. He used to work with Shania Twain and a bunch of other country artists based out of Nashville. Um, so, you know, I was like, maybe this guy can help me out because he helped this other guy out. So I basically queued up an email, sent him a cold email, <clears throat> telling him what I had done, what I wanted to do, that I was from the South, and that I wanted to see what it was like to be able to work <clears throat> in a management capacity. Um, a few months went by. I got a call from him. Um, we started talking. We kind of stayed in touch. He let me know that there was an internship opportunity at a studio where he housed a bunch of songwriters and managers over in London um, that he was a partner in. And things just kind of worked out for me to go over there and experience that. Um, and it was honestly the, the, the best opportunity that I had as far as working hands-on with other managers and artists in that kind of space. Um, and it didn't really come to me on the U.S. side, so I just took it when I could. Yeah, um, really, but that's that's kind of that was a big move, and 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 you know, it, it took guts to just pick up and go over across the Atlantic to start your career. Um, what was it that you you picked up? What did you learn there that was really critical to what you're doing now? And let's talk about that too. Uh, I think the most important things I learned over there early on were, you know, at the end of the day. You have this perception of managers that, you know, it's all about making the deal happen. It's all about the business. It's all about this and that. And they sit kind of in this throne in your eyes. Um, but what I really learned over there is that a lot of being a manager is just taking care of your, your client first as a person. Because at the end of the day, you know, if they're not happy and healthy and in a good place and in an understanding place with what they're trying to create or what's going on, they're not going to be able to function as a business and they're not going to be able to be productive and you're not going to be able to get them to necessarily do any of the things that you think are in their best interest if they're not in a good spot. Um, you know, and taking that and kind of also understanding that, you know, understanding who you're working with and their expectations and managing those things because, you know, I can go grab a million and one opportunities for someone, but at the end of the day, it's completely out of my control how they handle those opportunities and if they even like those opportunities. You know, it's really under, getting to understand them as a person and kind of what makes them tick and what makes them be who they are because artists are very um, unique people. You know, there's a reason that they're artists, and it's because they click in a little bit of a different way than everyone else. And I just think those were kind of the things that I took away from over there is just really make an effort to understand who they are as people outside of as artists because if the person underneath the artist isn't necessarily in a good spot or isn't, you know, healthy or in a good state of mind, then they can't be a productive artist. They can't be an artist that can communicate with people and make that into a career, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, it does. Now, um, how did you come back into New Orleans and um – how did you identify the clients that you wanted to work with here, and who do you work with? Um, I started, well, you know, I've been doing the live shows, um, and I had met Pell through just mutual friends um, as an artist, 
and I had him open a couple of shows for different hip hop artists um, from the promoting side. And you know, I liked what I had seen from him, but at that time, it was like trying to figure out. You know, we were all in school. There's kids that make music while you're in college, just to kind of do it. Um, and there's kids that actually care about it and are trying to make it into a career. So I kind of stepped back and just watched him navigate um, and watched him try to do these things that were much bigger than just like a local scale. You know, I saw the vision he had. Necessarily the execution wasn't quite there yet because he didn't have a team around him. Um, but I saw the ambition and I saw the vision. And I saw what he wanted to do with it. Um, and eventually people started calling me to get in touch with him Um just because they had seen me put him on shows and see me kind of promoting his content on the internet and things like that. And we just started working together in a natural space and then one day really formalized it into an actual agreement. But it came together really naturally. It wasn't something I necessarily was like, this is who it's going to be and this is how it's going to be. Um, it just kind of woke up one day and we were, we realized we were on the phone all day working on ideas and pitching things and putting things together. So we just kind of made it made sense to keep going forward like that. So he, he has a, an unusual vision. And um, just two weeks ago, I had Tank and the Bangers in my uh, studio on the show. And, and uh, I was really kind of awestruck at the uh, range of genres that they weave into their music. And, and then I had to pick up uh, and take a look at some of the videos of Pell. And um, I, this combination of... A little bit of hip hop, rap, soul, but with ambient music in the background, that threw me for a loop. And I said, "Well, how interesting is that? And how did it come about that?" Um, I think it's just kind of honestly being from New Orleans. You know, the the way he best describes it is, you know, growing up around the musical culture of New Orleans and um, just kind of all the different scenes that have emerged out of there, and just the diversity in the city as a whole outside of music. You know, it really allowed he and I both to grow up um, in musical landscapes that weren't particularly one thing. You know, it's like with Pell, he loves hip-hop. He loves people like Kanye West. He loves people like Lupe Fiasco. But in the same breath, he'll sing a Stevie Wonder song. He'll sing a Vampire Weekend song. He'll sing a TV on the radio song. You know, it's it's just, I think, a product of being... It looks like I just... Lost you for a second. We're going to get you right back. Um, stand by, Chris, if you can hear me. Um, so, so interesting, really. And I do recommend anybody in the audience who's not familiar with Pell, you know, the, the drill. You just go to YouTube and put in his name and up comes his music. And um, I was just I was really, really interested to see this this combination of what I would identify as maybe not New Orleans, but, you know, really pure um, hip hop, rap. <clears throat> and then in the background, ambient music. I mean, I'm familiar with that form, that music form. You know, I listen to Hearts of Space on Sunday nights. It's a whole different universe. So this combining of universes really am amazed me. Got you back, Chris? Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. Oh, um, it happens. So, you know, the beauty of uh, con contemporary um, TV technology. on the radio apparently tripped it off. <laughs> yeah, we have John Swenson in the studio with me. He's a contributing editor for Offbeat Magazine and a man of, of a long, long list of publications that he's worked with and, and done. So that was, um, he just uh, piped in. 
Um, okay, so where do we go from here? You, you, he's out there. He's doing this kind of really interesting music. Does he perform in in New Orleans? And and who's his audience? It, it has to be a slightly different, um, you know, uh, cons- uh, audience that that's into his stuff. Definitely. Um, and you know what we've seen from his tours is it's mainly, you know, more of a college age audience, um, and it doesn't really stick to a specific race, which I think is interesting as a hip-hop artist. You know, people particularly like, oh, it's a hip-hop artist, you're going to go, it's going to be a club setting, it's going to be, you know, more of that, like, nightlife um, kind of vibe. But with Pell, we really wanted to stick to developing, like, a band and, and making sure he's doing real venues with real ticket sales, um, that he's promoted the right way, and that we're making sure that we're speaking to, to everyone, you know, regardless of whether you like hip-hop or you like indie or, you know, what really your musical taste is. We wanted to make sure that when Pell's on stage and he looks out into a crowd, that the room is full of, you know, a bit and piece of every part of the world. Um, Because I think that's kind of what his music speaks to. Like you said, there's a lot of different things going on. um, And we try to make sure that we find ways to really access um, different lanes as far as demographics go and make sure that, we find ways to put it in front of people that wouldn't typically listen to hip-hop because at the end of the day, once you kind of knock down the idea of what New Orleans hip-hop is, how does it really fit in that bubble? That oh, makes sense. So, so you just raised a, a, an interesting question because um, I, I, I really I wouldn't know how to answer that question if somebody asked me that question, so I'm going to ask you, how would you define New Orleans hip-hop versus hip-hop from other parts of our country? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind to me and to most people when you say New Orleans hip-hop is No Limit, Cash Money, and probably most recently Currency, um, and more like the Jet Life um, movement that's going on there. But, you know, people just immediately think of that and of bounce music. And I think, you know, people like Juvenile and Manny Fresh, that's kind of the things that people know most from New Orleans. Lil Wayne, you know, that whole era of... You know, a lot of it was dancey, or a lot of it was more upbeat, but it was definitely more of like a braggadocio, like storytelling, real personality-based hip-hop. You know, it wasn't something that was necessarily full of live instrumentation or full of more ambient, slowed-down singing and that type of thing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, how I would describe the difference. I mean... Each each region seems to have their own sound, but it seems like with New Orleans, people still come back to Cash Money and to Manny Fresh and to Juvenile and to that whole movement. You know, it hasn't really ever strayed away from New Orleans in that sense. Well, but you used the word was, so I'm curious to to hear your um, your your interpretation of the timeline of their work. Do you feel like? You, you mentioned that era. Is that an era that has passed, or you feel still feel it's really strong? Uh, how would you place that? Uh, I think it's passed in a way. I think that the torch is kind of being passed on at this point um, because you see people like Manny Fresh working with younger New Orleans artists. Um, and even like Juvenile just put out a song, and it was a more of a different vein for him. And people are, you know, as people grow and evolve, kind of the sound will do that with them. But there's a whole new wave of, New Orleans artists that Pell has put me on to that are making real music and making a real different type of hip-hop that 
um, combines a lot of the brass elements of, of New Orleans music's culture and the jazz elements. And, you know, we'll be in a studio in New Orleans, and there will be five or six kids from a local high school playing trumpets and saxophone, and then a kid playing guitar and all of this, and then someone rapping over the final product, as opposed to something where it's like more of a traditional, you go in with a computer and you make a beat. You know what I mean? So I think the torch has kind of been passed and the idea of people, younger people see what cash money and see what No Limit and these people were able to do and how they were able to make a voice for themselves. Um, and now that the internet has kind of opened the doors to all genres and to learn about all the different ways you can make it, um, I think everyone's kind of starting to put their own twist on that for like a newer New Orleans sound that's more encompassing of the soul and the jazz and everything else from the city. That's that's really interesting, um, uh, your interpretation that the Internet has opened these doors uh, to the mix of genres. And um, I, I think there's no doubt that that's true. Who are some of the, you mentioned some of the new wave artists uh, that he's introduced you to. So who are some of the artists that you're working with now? And let's let's broaden the question and say, you know, who are some of the young cats that are coming up that, um, you know, we should be paying attention to, we should check out? Um, well, I'm not working with any of them directly, but there are a few in New Orleans. I'm a few producers. Um, there's a kid named Dante Wilmore that's incredibly talented. He works um, with a partner of his called Mellow, and there's a group they're called Playgrounds, um, and they've done stuff for Pell um, with Currency and the Jet Life crew with Nesby Phipps, um, people like that. And these are young kids that are, you know, just making studios in their houses and making music. Um, the whole 0017th movement, um, it's just a large group of rappers from New Orleans. I can't even probably name all of them. Um, but they just had a song with Fetty Wap that came out probably 10 months ago or so. And at this point, Fetty Wap's more or less a full-blown pop star um, with his song Trap Queen that is, I don't know how many times platinum now and won tons of awards. So it's cool to see these little movements with the New Orleans connect to the stuff that's happening on the national scale. And it's really resonating outside of New Orleans and then kind of coming back. Um, another example, uh, Ombre Perkins is a younger artist uh, from New Orleans who just signed on with um, Kaylani, who's a big R&B singer's team. Um, so that's an awesome look for her, um, a really strong female R&B vocalist. Um, trying to think of who else. There's a duo called Mulheron from New Orleans. Um, Mulherin? Yes. It's two brothers, um, and they're twins. One's a producer, and one, and they both sing over the tracks, but it's definitely more of like a 90s live instrument, kind of R&B, circa Justin Timberlake type vibe, so it's really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things going on in New Orleans um, that I don't think has necessarily gotten that shine yet, but it's very much on the cusp. Uh, of being known as, as a place for breeding new talent, especially in hip-hop. So if, uh, and I, I, I've strayed a little bit from my intention with the, your interview, but I'm going to uh, let everybody remember that uh, you're going to be talking uh, more to the point at the um, Sync Up Conference, one of my favorite opportunities for learning about how to do uh, your how to develop your career in in music, um, but I can't resist um, taking it one step further on all these new acts. So where, how would I, if I'm, you know, I like to know the latest thing, even if it's not exactly what I grew up with. Um, how would I check into all this new uh, sound? Um, honestly, just kind of the internet and being a part 
of that whole filter, I guess, in the New Orleans scene. Um, for me, I've just come across them through knowing Pell and through mutual connections, but it seems like most of these kids are doing shows at places um, more like Gaza Gaza, Hi-Ho Lounge, um, The Willow, and just more of places that have pretty regular performing nights. Um, and they'll go in and do, they'll do more of like a hip-hop showcase night, and a lot of these kids will come out and kind of take it under their own accord to promote it and make sure that the room is full and that people are there to hear their music. Um, right. All right, speaking of that, let's go back to your role. So um, as, as, as kids are getting a little bit more sophisticated in how to um, work the Internet world to advance their careers, and I, I couldn't help but notice in, in the write-up on you that you're speaking of Pell as an artist who has 15 million spins on Spotify. So that's not how an artist used to be measured. He used to be measured by, you know, how many times music was played on the radio, how many records um, he or she sold, and here we are talking about spins on Spotify. So how do you as a manager keep up with this incredibly fast-paced infrastructure of the content world? I have to say content because it's not just music. It's visual arts. It's design. It's media. It's everything. Um, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, there's new things every day, and I, I feel like a lot of it is trying to do the best that I can to really filter out what seems most important and what seems like it's resonating with people versus what people are just saying is kind of the next big thing in the social world. Um, but going back to like the Spotify thing that you were saying for us, for an artist like Pell, who's not signed to a, a record label, um, standard radio airplay isn't something that we can necessarily make a huge push for. It's very expensive. It's controlled by people that have different partnerships that are just beyond our world right now. Um, so for us to go in and say, where can we go in and make kind of a commercial statement without having necessarily the money to fund a huge marketing campaign to rival these major labels? Well, you look at something like Apple and iTunes, you know, it's really hard to get people to buy money. I mean, to buy money, to spend money on records to begin with. Um, something like SoundCloud is great for artists, but up until recently, it wasn't able to be monetized. Um, so we kind of looked at the whole landscape of things, at free mixtapes, websites, things like that, and we're like, let's find a place for Pell that we can really go in and develop his fan base with that will not only give us more tentacles and give us hard data to use to pitch him for bigger opportunities, but will also allow him to create some type of residuals. And for us, Spotify was that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, we found some champions there that really liked Pell's music, um, worked really closely with them on particular campaigns to make sure that we gave them what they needed from us to make sure that, you know, the people that pick their playlists or the people that pick who's going to play their South by Southwest event or things like that understand who Pell is and understand that we are down to be a part of the program, so to speak, Um, and just really try to make as much of a partnership and teamwork happen there as possible. Um, And for Pell, it's been a huge asset. I mean, the data that we're able to collect from something like Spotify, where we can see how many people are listening to him in particular cities. We can see, you know, where people are hearing his music, if it's from his artist page, if it's from playlists, if it's from other websites. All those types of things allowed us to kind of go in and build a a comprehensive pitch when we go visit brands and when we go visit 
you know, live performances, festivals, things like that, and say, here's our big markets, here's how many people are listening to Pell, and this is on a platform that's actually generating real revenue. This isn't a platform where I can go in and buy the number of plays or doctor it or make it look better than it actually is. You know, it's interesting to me, um, and I, I'm going to have to wrap us up as much as I'd, I could go on with you for a long time, but I've got two other guests <laughs> yeah. on the show. But um, what, what's interesting to me, because I work with all the arts, not just with music. I used to work with just music, but now I work with um, a lot of the different arts. It's, I can't think of um, another a way that visual arts, uh, for example, uh, can work the internet quite the way you do in the music world. Maybe, um, Chris, sometime we'll have to chat about that a little bit. I've got to figure out some strategies because visual artists, is, I, I think, I, I could be wrong, are having a harder time than musical artists in breaking through. Um, you've been terrific. I'm really, uh, look forward to, uh, catching up with you. So listen, stay in touch as things are developing and you want to get the word out. Uh, don't hesitate to give me a call. And um, I, I, stand, stand, stay on the line for just a minute because I'm going to start uh, a conversation with John Swenson. I brought him in because this um, Sunday we're doing a, a tribute to Alan Toussaint uh, at the Jazz Fest. And um, it's kind of the, in a sense, the closing of the memorial chapter. And so I thought um, I would bring him in because he wrote... Um, a more than usual tra- uh, intriguing article about the way Two Cent worked as a producer. Um, and uh, I, I would kind of interested it, it, for you to hear some of the things he's about to say about how Two Cent produced and compare that to how production is working today. So let, let me uh, start in with him. And if you don't mind, hang in for just a little bit. If you've got to run, uh, just uh, drop out any time and Thank you for coming on with us. But so, so, so John Swenson is uh, writing now for Offbeat Magazine. He's written for Rolling Stone, Crawdaddy, Circus, Rockworld, written about 10 or 15 books, somewhere in there, um, published books, uh, including biographies of people like Bill Haley, The Who, Stevie Wonder, The Eagles. I mean, he kind of knows a little bit about the music world that has been. Uh, yeah, and uh, I love music. I, I, I'd just like to add this uh, an addendum to this really interesting conversation that uh, we're in the middle of. Uh, uh, I think somebody that uh, might be uh, brought up in the context of, of what we've been talking about is Big Frida, who, oh, yeah. uh, you know, is kind of the queen of bounce and has won all kinds of awards locally. You know, the bounce um, scene is very local. It's ward to ward, street to street, and... Uh, it's so New Orleans in that in that way, and I think that that's something um, you know uh, graffiti and uh, street art has always been uh, hand in hand with with hip hop from the very beginning, and you do see that here, um, you know, uh, in terms of the the bounce uh, music and some of the stuff that you see on. Walls, some of the various artists uh, uh, expressing themselves. Uh, I'd also like to give a shout-out to Bangin' Records uh, because uh, Don B. is Dave Bartholomew's son, and he and his sons, that's three generations of Bartholomew's going back to Fats Domino making the hit records uh, in all these different genres, and I think that's another thing 
about New Orleans music that's so fascinating. Is the that's, musical families and, yes. and how they uh, again they they're multi-genre because you, you as the generations develop they move from genre to genre. But but John, let let's talk a little bit about. I want to go into your article on. Um, what what intrigued me because there's been a lot written about Toussaint. I've interviewed him. I've I've spent a lot of time with him working on productions that we did together. But what I I, I found uh, intriguing about your articles is how you really drilled down to the specifics of how he produced with the group, and it was actually in a way related to what Chris was just saying because what you said I remember this this whole anecdote of um, going into a studio letting an artist come in play their music straight through all their numbers having him listen through all of that and then and only then start asking questions about how they might want to tweak improve enhance Mm -hmm. sections uh, elements of what they did, and that's not getting into the whole issue of the arrangements and horns for a minute, um, which in a way is equivalent to what he was talking about with the ambient sounds that Appel works with. Um, uh, talk, talk to me just a little bit about uh, how he expressed that to you. Well, I think that uh, this is something that characterizes Alan's approach to producing from the very beginning. Um, his One of his most famous productions that story you were just talking about is about Papa Gross Funk making their last record. And he came in and they played the songs and uh, they, they, uh, they played them through one time and he went into the, into the studio with them and immediately had to break down of very specific suggestions that he would make to uh, help them improve their songs. But um, I, I, I think, you know, he's... And that, that what that reflects is the in, inherent musicianship. In I was just going to say he wasn't a producer separate from being a musician. He was a musician who also produced. And I think that this is a reflective in in most of his work. Uh, perhaps his most famous song uh, produ- uh, production and and uh, ro- songwriting bit is uh, "Mother-in-Law" by Ernie K. Doe. And uh, from 1961, and uh, w- the way he describes it, uh, the, when when he presented the song to Ernie Cado, Ernie Cado originally did it in a very kind of high-powered gospel style, which Ernie was a very powerful singer. And um, Alan Alan said, uh, "No, I didn't mean it that way." And uh, <laughs> and the, the 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 version of Mother-in-Law that we hear. Is very nuanced and subtle. It's oh, uh, it's almost soft. Yeah, yeah. and uh, when you think about, it's ironic. It, there's a there's a humor in it that it would have been lost if it was done like as a full, full out gospel uh, tour right. de force. So yeah. that that subtlety, that uh, that understatement, uh, the slow groove. This is something that was always uh, going through. Uh, uh, Alan's uh, productions, and uh, you know, as a songwriter, the incredible sense of melody, and uh, uh, that uh, the other thing. Uh, I don't know. Am I getting ahead of what you want to talk about? No, here? bro. Uh, I I also spoke for this piece that I wrote with Mark Mullins, who's uh, probably the top arranger in the city right now. Um, he's with Bonarama, and he's. 
he's done all of these. He did some of the arrangements for the Jungle Book, and uh, uh, he's done all these other things. And he he identifies uh, Toussaint as his favorite arranger um, uh, uh, by virtue of a method that he uses called through-composed arrangements, which uh, uh, what he what he did is the second verse won't have the same horn language as the third verse. The choruses might have all different variations. It's like a song within a song that happens in the background with these ever-developing horn parts dancing along beautifully and freely, but tight and very well organized. Uh, I love the way he expressed that. And he went on to say that uh, Earl King's Street Parade uh, is his favorite uh, Toussaint arrangement, and uh, it is a great piece of music. Chris, well, to what extent do you think these traditions of making music in New Orleans by some of the greats like Toussaint and Dave Bartholomew, for that matter, and you know some of the the guys that maybe some of these young folks like uh, I wonder if Pell has ever really listened to Toussaint or or um, Fats Domino music, but I'm sure they have. And so, so, so to what extent is there a connection? Uh, I think there's just a connection and more or less like the energy and the spirit that those guys created and kind of fostered for the city. And I think, you know, that's what I was kind of trying to touch on, I guess, in an indirect way of what I feel like is happening now with a lot of these younger kids is they're kind of rediscovering what it means to make real music outside of the Internet and outside of computers and, you know, making something that's really based on emotion and based on, a lot of just the energy that New Orleans is created around. And I feel like that's something that, you know, Toussaint and those guys really captivated and kind of understood how to capture it. Um, and it didn't get lost, I would say, but it, I think it definitely kind of got disrupted by just kind of the world evolving the way it does and music evolving the way it does. And I feel like people are kind of going back to creating music with a feeling and trying to capture those moments as opposed to looking at things in like a linear way. So speaking of emotions, uh, I, I'm going to ask um, my engineer to jazz to uh, play a little bit of one of my favorite Toussaint songs, which which I didn't even know it was a Toussaint song for a long time, as Freedom for the Stallion, and then I'll get him to cue up mother-in-law to hear those horns. Freedom for the Stallion Freedom for the mare and a coat Freedom for the baby child Who has not grown old enough To vote for Lord have mercy What you gonna do About the people who are praying to you They got men making laws That destroy other men They've made money gone as a dog To help us find a way Big ships are sailing Slaves all chained and bound Hidden for a brand new land That some cat said he up and found Lord have mercy what you gonna do about the people who are praying to you Now when I look in 
inside my mind Searching for the truth I find Oh Lord, you got to help us find a way So, I mean, you know, pretty powerful emotion there. And actually, I hadn't heard it in a while. And, and the resonance of that with what's going on in our country today is incredible. It speaks so much to um, some really nasty trends out there amongst people that are I totally understand where this is all coming from, this incredible frustration and disappointment of of losing, you know, just thousands and thousands of jobs and whole cities along the way and the dream of America. And it, 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 get, it takes uh, uh, its form in different ways from the Bernie Sanders end to the Trump end. And I don't know, hopefully we'll realize that somebody who maybe is not as exciting as them as a Hillary can uh, hold it all together. But um, we've, we, we, it, we're long past um, breaking the mold and looking for a, a way. And here he is talking about a way and, and truly finding freedom. And it's very powerful. Are you still with us, Chris? Did we get you back? No. All right. Well, um, you know, uh, so, so back onto the, I think uh, Alan. Let me not let that go. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Alan. Alan was uh, very socially conscious, and um, he was way, way ahead of everybody else. Obviously, he could he could write a uh, uh, you know a song about anything, but he wrote the great uh, song for the Pointer Sisters. Yes, we can, can a, a real civil rights anthem uh, and feminist. And, yeah. Yes, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, he was he was definitely well attuned towards this. I would have loved to have heard him work with Prince. That would have been really well, interesting. <laughs> I don't know if that would have worked out so well. I think you got some pretty strong characters there, each one of them. And uh, well, I don't. Who knows? Sometimes. Sometimes people are funny about putting two strong people together. They're thinking they're going to clash, and then it turns out they're the ones who understand each other best and do, in fact, emerge with some very strong ideas, which brings up the the most recent work that he he did do before um, he so unfortunately died so young, um, his work with Elvis Costello and uh, After the Storm, and um, I'd, I'd love to hear um, your perspective on the work that was that came out of that period. Well, um, you know, Alan lost everything in the storm, and uh, that would that would have broken. So mo- he lost charts, right? He must have lost literally his music. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, and uh, instruments, his studio, his home. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had to relocate to New York and start over. And, um, he, he did a series of shows at Joe's Pub in New York. And, uh, Elvis Costello, uh, saw him at one of those and, and, uh, proposed that they record together. Um, they recorded with another producer, Joe Henry. At Piety Street, and it was the first, the first uh, you know, return of the recording 
uh, business to New Orleans after Katrina. Also, probably the first time Toussaint recorded in a studio other than... No, that's not true. He recorded in studios in L.A., I remember that. So I was oh, going to yeah. say, the first time he recorded outside of his own studio, but that's not true. Um, uh, so they were, they were back in... Uh, they were doing that by December, which is a couple of months after, while much of the city still didn't have electricity and stuff. Uh, they were in there uh, making the record, uh, and uh, a lot of producers were involved in that. Uh, but Joe Henry uh, uh, ran the show, and uh, uh, Mark Bingham, who who uh, was the co-owner of Piety Street, was there for the whole thing, and I, I interviewed him for this story as well. And he was really impressed with how Alan um, worked just as a session musician, he was able to completely subsume his ego to the uh, event and just like quietly sit there and fulfill his role as a session musician, if that's what his role was in that uh, in that particular uh, uh, project. And of course, he went on with Joe Henry make to another record, uh, kind of a tribute to New Orleans jazz. Uh, his first jazz record, the first jazz mm-hmm. record that uh, Tucson ever recorded, uh, called Bright Mississippi, which is beautiful, beautiful. And they they made another record before he died, which we haven't heard yet. No one know, no one's heard it. Well, I get the people who played on it have heard it, but I I certainly haven't, and I'm really interested to hear, you know, what the posthumous work hmm. from Alan yeah. might be. And unfortunately, we'll never hear all the music he would have produced had he lived longer. And that's, of course, the saddest part of uh, the whole story. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Jean Montez, who is the Artistic Director for the Greater New Orleans Youth Orchestra, to join us in the studio now. And, um, John, hang in, because I always like a little bit of um, sure. you know, overlap here, if you don't mind. Uh, he's got a, a whole different genre of music to talk about. But if you love music, you love them all. There's only one kind of music I don't really love, and that's, I'm sorry, hard rock. Hard rock is just not my thing. Hi, welcome. Come sit down over here. Well, we have it all on. here in New Orleans. Huh? We have it all We have it all. We have it all. And, um, yeah, I should be a little bit um, more open-minded about some of it. But uh, other than Jimi Hendrix, maybe... <laughs> You know, um, it's just... Uh, you make an exception for him. Yeah, I make an exception for him. But um, So, Dr. Jean, put your headphones on uh, just in case. Um, you know, I, I just like to you hear yourself in a different way when you do that. And um, we've he's got a, a, a performance coming up that um, I always like to make sure that I get that in before we forget. And um, your performance is a Mother's Day performance. And, and as I said in my notes, you probably didn't see the um, the blast that I put out, but I said, you know, this is for all kinds of mothers, not just mothers with human babies, but mothers of cities, yes. mothers of a block, yes. mothers of neighborhoods, mothers of pets, yes. you know, of... of other critters, other species. So uh, on behalf of all mothers, you have a performance coming up. Let's start there. Just tell me about that performance, where it is, what it's all about, why you're doing it, and then we'll back up and learn more about you and the kind of work that you do with youth, which That's is great. very interesting. And, again, it's going to play off what we've been talking about. I don't know if you heard any uh, part of the show before this, but we've been talking about 
the influence of people on other musicians as they work with them in studio, in performance, as producers and I so heard, forth. I heard some of it. Thank you okay. so much for having me. It's Thank a, you for coming it's in. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I didn't take my pictures yet. i got to take uh -oh. some pictures. But go ahead. Go ahead. And uh, just uh, the, the concert is uh, really celebrating mothers, as you said. I mean, this we all come from a mother. And uh, I think they are the cornerstone of our lives one way or another. They all contributed. And sometimes we get those that adopted us, you know, so we have multiple mothers sometimes. And the idea is that the young musicians that I get to work with in New Orleans, which are uh, really keeping what we call the cultural her heritage of the city, um, I feel very honored to have them uh, and work with them. But also it's great for us to really share that love of music uh, with uh, our wonderful uh, citizen of the city, but also the mothers. Every year we try to do something very special. For so this is something you've, you've uh, d I happen to have gotten a notice of at this time and, yes. and, and tuned in on it, but you've been doing this. We've done this uh, in different uh, s um, places, but this is the first time we're doing it at the Orpheum, at okay. the place where we'd like. So therefore we're opening it up to more people to show up and come and really participate in this special uh, day that uh, it's such a beautiful facility and great acoustics, all those good things yes, to really yeah. um, and, uh, and make your music sound even better. But um, so one of the things that I, I understand that you do aside from perform is work with students. Yes, and um, I'd like to know why. And 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 you have apparently some special perspective on how you work with youth. Well, I think the the you know as we. In this profession, we try to really keep this going, uh, and it's a gift that we have to pass on. And as we try to do that, for me, it's very gratifying to really put an instrument in the hands of a youngster for the first time and, and see how that they become one uh, and as they grow and, and develop uh, together. And we've had students for the last uh, 20 years, uh, this is our 21st year, that has gone to not only you know teaching music, making music, but also being great citizens that just understand the value of the arts in our lives and able to really continue to listen, continue to, uh, you know, support and so on. So we, we I think, uh, feel that uh, music is, is what makes us, I think, uh, human uh, in the, in many ways, and uh, we all listen to some kind of music. Whether <laughs> uh, you know, so it's 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 a common bond that I think we all can share. So and so yeah. So John mentioned uh, at one point um, the the uh, importance of uh, the relationship between the producer and and uh, the musicians and um, and and. Uh, and the fact that musician, uh, he talked of Alan Toussaint in, in particular as somebody who had a co social uh, perspective. But in my experience, I find most musicians, and I, 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 I may be totally prejudiced about this, do have a, a broader perspective about society yes. and, and their place in it. And um, one of the, when I first started working with musicians, like many years ago, I was shocked to learn how many of them uh, keep up with the news, yes. listen to the news, yes. know what's going on, have a, a view of it, and it, and it affects their work. Yeah. And um, again, Beyonce is, is the latest example <laughs> of somebody who is channeling um, you know, the social and personal issues, of course, as well. But how did you um, 
How did this evolve for you? How did who who was the one who put an instrument in your hand? Yeah, I was very fortunate uh, to grow up uh, in a household where music, especially singing, was very important. I grew up in Haiti, uh, a little bit down south, uh, but we we sing, we dance, and and uh, part of the roots of this culture is rooted in in the drum. So you all grew up in kind of a, surrounded with that, and I was very fortunate to be in an environment. Uh, where I was uh, allowed to uh, come and, and grow music. Such a powerful influence, and, and I, I have to share a personal story because I just can't resist. But um, when I was a teen, a, a young person, even preteen and teen, in the Bronx, in New York, um, I used to go to a place called the Don Allen Library in Manhattan and borrow records. And the, one of the series that I borrowed the most was Haitian drum music. Oh, yeah. It drove yeah. me crazy. I think my parents <laughs> both thought I was totally nuts because I would dance all over the house to yeah. these drums. And they have been with me for my life. I, oh, I find good. them so important. And, of course, uh, Cuban rhythms yes, as well are absolutely. very important. No, they, they're very uh, very part of our, you know, your heartbeat uh, is the first impressions of life that we give, I guess. But I think we all are, you know, percussionists in a way. We all have a rhythm, whether it's through life and through the way that we do things. But the value of, of that you know, is shared in everything that we do. Um, and uh, being able to instill that into young musicians, uh, it's something that I'm passionate about because I think they represent the future of uh, every society, every culture. So I, I, I see from uh, my little write-up on you that I have here that you um, teach, that you conduct. Um, you're director of orchestral studies and the coordinator of strings at Loyola University. Mm-hmm. What instrument do you play? Uh, my, my primary instrument is the cello, uh, but uh, as favorites. a music educator, we... we we have to really uh, connect with as many instruments as possible as a conductor as part mm-hmm. of the training. Uh, but uh, the cello is my primary instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, give me some feeling for um, it must not be the easiest thing in the world to work with, uh, with youth in New Orleans and pull them away from this popular music that is so powerful here and bring them into chamber music, whether... Um, older, historical, or more contemporary. How, how, how do you get them to make that transition? Well, actually, we don't. We try to put them uh, in a place where they, they are using the tools. That, that you know. So let's say you know to play an amazing Beethoven uh, symphony, uh, it takes the same energy to actually play some cool jazz tune or rock tune. Uh, so the idea is our students actually are being. Uh, cultivated uh, as true as in New Orleans musician, they have to have a, a, a really large and strong foundation. So therefore, they can migrate from uh, you know classical to jazz to rock to anything else. So we're just trying to really expose them. So when you come to our concert, you hear uh, basically a symphony orchestra that is sort of uh, open uh, to all kinds, and we have uh, collaborated with all the major. Uh, musicians in town, uh, Dr. Michael White, uh, Delphio Morsalis, uh, uh, to name a couple, uh, Maestro uh, Morsalis himself, uh, Ellis Morsalis, um, musicians such as Mark O'Connor, uh, you know, does everything from, from bluegrass to rock to jazz. So the idea is that the, 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 the tools that we use actually to make music take us from uh, classical all the way to now. And I think that's a characteristic of a true 
a New Orleans musician. I think you could vote for that. Yeah. That's been the theme in all three of our conversations today. Yeah. Um, are, are you doing, uh, what's the program going to be uh, for this, this concert? Uh, this program is, is going to be featuring three levels of students. We have a young uh, group uh, that is about uh, 70 students that are uh, our elementary age students. Uh, they start from first grade up to about fifth grade, and they're going to be performing various works. Some of them are rock-based, some of them are classical. Uh, they'll be doing one segment of about 15 minutes, and then we have another segment of middle-age group uh, that is a full orchestra that is going to be featuring a couple works that are mostly in the men uh, classical repertoire, but uh, that from age about sixth grade to eighth, and then the high school level will be performing a piece uh, by Shostakovich, a festive overture, uh, and then also featuring two works, one that is Latin, uh, Tico Tico, which you probably know very well, and then a little bit of, we're featuring a young violinist who won our concert competition, Mr. Justice Savoie, is uh, 10th grade and, and really doing very well. He's going to be a soloist on one of the pieces. So. Uh, there's a little bit of everything and then at the beginning of the concert actually before we're going to be featuring some chamber groups actually in the different setting different parts of the hall so that we can have music embracing the mothers uh, from the beginning to end that is really beautiful and so this is at the um, Orpheum and it is um, what is the exact date Uh, May 8th Mother's Day at 3 p.m. yes it's going to be Mother's Day what time 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Okay, now people can buy tickets in advance. Yes, they can buy tickets online. They just go to gnoyo.org or Eventbrite. G-N-O-Y-O for Gwydon Ones Youth Orchestra and then .org. .org. They can buy tickets there and or they can go to Eventbrite as well, buy tickets. Eventbrite, right. How has working in New Orleans affected your musical oeuvre? I think it's, it has uh, expanded in, uh, in, in very good ways. I've had the opportunity to, uh, from my training as a conductor, uh, really be able to, to come and really be, uh, ex- explore you know, more jazz, more, more world music uh, with the setting of the orchestra, so kind of really fusing that kind of work uh, in a larger setting, which is something that I'm very passionate about because I think that having um, a violinist uh, improvising is something unusual, but it shouldn't be. So therefore I get a chance to really push my students uh, that are playing more traditional instruments to kind of get a little feel for what uh, a trumpet player in the city gets to do every day on an everyday basis. So what does that mean? So, I mean, with, within the f- format of classical music to improvise? Yeah, I mean, there are pieces that are, I mean, we take we take several pieces that are uh, jazz-oriented mm-hmm. and will really provide opportunities for the young musicians to be able to develop their improvisational skills through those. So, therefore, you within the full orchestra, which is brass, woodwinds, and percussions, and the string section, you have students that are able to really get up and, and try to do that. So I expose them to works that are challenging, but also exploratory. So what it seems to me is really uh, important about the program that you're doing on for Mother's Day on May 8th at 3 p.m. at the Orpheum <laughs> yes. um, 
is is that it's something it's not just for the mothers it's for the the children it's it's the if 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 mom brings her kids to this performance yes. and sees these young people working with music and instruments it's going to inspire there's going to be somebody in that audience yes, that who's going to be. become an important musician yes that happens that's, that's, that happens that exposure yeah and it's great to to see you know adults perform you expect them to do well but when you look at the youngster and you kind of see how they're able to really focus and really come out uh, really on uh, upper end of being performers performers it's great for other youngsters to see that and being uh, having their own peers so to speak their world model being role model for them I see also that you spend some time um uh, getting around uh, outside of New Orleans, yes. and and you lecture. Yes. So to tell, I mean, I can, I have a hint of what you lecture about, but tell me a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with the, the kind of uh, lecturing that well, you do. Well, we, we we do all different. I mean, talking about uh, lecturing education, lecturing in um, you know general uh, Haitian um, um, kind of uh, diaspora culture. Um, and Haitian music, um, uh, world music. So really lecture on all kinds of uh, different uh, topics that relates to music and social sort of empowerment. Um, for, for instance, after the earthquake in Haiti, we, we created several programs that bring uh, Loyola students to Haiti and connect them with many different students there, bringing instruments and also uh, teaching. So it, it's kind of having the idea you brought of... Loyola students to Haiti? To Haiti. Uh-huh. And how did, uh, how did that go? That was fantastic because okay. really, you know, having the opportunity as a youngster to be able to go there and give uh, something to, to help in this recovery process was very special uh, for those youngsters. So the idea is is really having um, music, but music with a purpose. And I really think that uh, when you put uh, music at the center of uh, the, the so- society's need, natural needs, I think it really empowers everyone to, to look at things in a progress as well. This is, this is my engineer's way of forcing me to recognize that I am out of time because I am notorious for uh, bleeding over. Because when I get somebody like Dr. Montes, is that pronounced correct? Uh, Jean, first name, which is my name also. And and John Swenson, another John, really. Uh, In my studio, I just don't want to go anywhere. This is uh, a a treasure and uh, appreciation of my part. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And I'm going to really try to come to this uh, concert. I think it sounds fabulous. Don't forget about the tribute for Alan on Sunday afternoon. I know it's going to be a big mob scene, but you can always find those little corners where you can Yeah, that'll listen. be worth checking out. Right? Sure. And John, I, I look forward to more of your writing. Uh, everybody look on the internet and see the works of uh, John Swenson, the author. And I will let Alan, I guess, take us out. Gene Nathan, Cross Town Conversations. See you next